Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 34D, an interview on Ike, the last general, with Colonel Brian Gibby. I'm excited to welcome Colonel Brian Gibby to the show today. Brian is the deputy head of the history department at West Point. He is also a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces, and I greatly appreciate his time, as today we're going to talk about the last president to attend West Point and the last general to reach the presidency, Dwight Eisenhower, and how Ike's time at the Academy, in the Army, and during World War II shaped his leadership style and impacted his presidential administration. Uh, Thank you for your time, Brian. Thank you for your service, and welcome to the show. Kenny, thank you very much. This is uh, it's my honor and uh, privilege to be on the show with you. I'm very excited to talk about General Eisenhower and, and President Eisenhower. Me too. Uh, and let's start. I'd love to start by asking, does Ike ever come up in your lectures? And if so, how does he resonate with today's cadets? Yeah, we do uh, spend a, a good amount of time on President Eisenhower. We have two courses in military history that all cadets have to take. Uh, The first is called the Army of the Republic, Leading Citizen Soldiers. And this is a core course that all the plebes, or what what they're called freshmen in in other institutions, uh, they all have to take it in the fall of their uh, plebe year. And it's a history of the United States Army. And when we get to the second half of the course, we're into the 20th century, where, of course, you know, General Eisenhower is a very significant figure. And we talk about uh, the Second World War for a couple lessons, and we get into the early part of the Cold War also for you know one or two lessons. So we get to talk about his uh, his leadership and and his presidency in a very broad. It's a survey course, so in a very broad way. The course where he gets a little bit better attention is in the history of the military art of the 20th century, which is an upper class course. So those are mostly juniors and seniors. And there we spend substantial amount of time on uh, World War II and, and time on the interwar period as well between World right. War I and World War II where you know, Eisenhower is kind of cutting his teeth. And so he gets, he gets more, more attention. And I think for cadets, uh, it, it does resonate because uh, General Eisenhower is one of the uh, four individuals – excuse me, five individuals that have a statue – on what we call the plain, and the oh. plain is the parade is the parade ground at West yeah. Point. So it's right it's right out in front. Um, all cadets every time cadets go to class, they walk by Eisenhower's statue. So they're they're certainly aware of of who he is and that he was an academy graduate. And uh, if they pause at the at the statue and actually look at the inscription. They'll see that he was a president. Uh, they'll see that they'll see that he had five stars. You know, for yeah. some of them, that that might be new information. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when they go, they go into their history classes. You know, and they they learn about uh, what he did as the supreme commander, uh, which for us, you know, as West Point West Point uh, alumni and, and instructors, we're, we're really proud of that because uh, we we don't win the war without him. He's yeah. that uh, he's that essential to the narrative of the Second World War. And then what he does as a president, you know, being uh, the, the, the first president to go into office with the Cold War already, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. already in progress. For the 20-somethings, you know, who are, you know, who, who are worried about their day-to-day lives, to then expose him to somebody who has literally the weight of the world, you know, on his shoulders in fighting a global, a global war and then the Cold War, I, I think is, it's, really, it's really impressive for them. 
Awesome. Thanks. And now, you know, we talk about Ike being this great leader, and there are many ways to be a leader. You can be a shouter, an inspirer, a collaborator. You know, there's many ways to skin that cat. What was Ike's leadership style like? I think I would I would characterize it more like a, a leader by consensus. And I, what I mean by that is he did a lot to inspire people around him uh, to want to pull, you know, to get everyone pulling for the common goal. He, he was very effective uh, at that. And, and we really see this when he's first appointed uh, to be the, the commander of Operation Torch in 1942, where it's just kind of ironic, uh, a, a, an officer who has not, who has never heard a shot fired in anger right is is now the commander of what up to that point is going to be the largest amphibious invasion ever attempted and you this know, is in the history. invasion of northwest africa right exactly yeah operation torch northwest africa and he has as his subordinates British, mainly British, British officers who have been fighting the Germans now for over two years and have reached the pinnacle of their profession because they were at World War One. You know, they have all this combat experience. Yeah. And he's in charge and he's in charge of them. And so he had to, you know, find ways to get them all pulling together. And, you know, there's there's national rivalries, British and right. American. Yeah. And, and then the French get involved, you yeah. know, eventually. So you got a three-way. You have service rivalries. You know, the Army right. doesn't like the Navy. The Navy yeah. doesn't like the Air Force. Yeah. And you got to get all them together. And then it's American Army and British Navy. You know, there's all sorts of ways uh, that this operation could have gone could have gone sour. But Eisenhower manages to keep it all together and he really does this by consensus. And I think that that's critically important that he, he was confident that everybody understood the plan, accepted the plan, and was going to execute the plan to the best of their ability. And he was just really good at that kind of leadership. And, and that extends all the way into his presidency. And there's a phrase out there, natural born leader. You know, some people, maybe they were always the tallest, the strongest, the fastest, the funniest. For whatever reason, they were looked to as leaders from a young age. Was Ike a natural leader or was this something he learned from experience over life? I, I think Ike had, he had some qualities for sure that um, attracted people to him. People, they, they liked Ike, and, and that's you know the famous slogan from his presidential campaign. I, I like Ike. He was a very likable um, person. I think that he had a, a calming influence uh, when people are you know, going crazy because you know, the plan's going wrong or, or they're not getting in their way. Um, he, he, his, his presence, his influence tended to reassure people that things were going to turn out okay. Uh, that doesn't mean that he didn't have a temper. He he did. He he was quite a famous. You know, if you made him angry, he he would let you know, and and you would you would see it. You know, his his face would turn red, his veins would bulge, right? But you really you really had to push him hard to get to <laughs> yeah, to yeah. get to that point, right? <laughs> so he had a tremendous amount of, of patience, and um, and, uh, and and confidence and confidence in in the principles that that he believed in and uh and just had great character uh, you know people people wanted to work with him mm, mm -hmm. even people who didn't like him mm. you know 
Montgomery, the British general Montgomery, sure. Bernard yeah. Montgomery certainly had conflicts with Ike. Patton, George Patton, yep. you know, certainly has conflicts with Ike. But they, but they never said, you know, I'm not doing it. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not working mm-hmm. for him. You know, he he had a way of of bringing of bringing them along, which is uh, a tremendous um, leadership accomplishment, right? Yeah. Now he certainly does learn. So those are his natural characteristics, and then he certainly yeah. does learn uh, as an officer. He graduates from West Point in 1915. Uh, he doesn't, you know, doesn't go to World War One. He has various uh, staff jobs and and the like, but he also he has these experiences in particular as a lieutenant uh, with the National Guard. Mm-hmm. So very early in his career, he's he's assigned to a National Guard brigade, and he's he's thrown into uh, the kind of unit that most regular Army officers of the time period would have done anything to stay away from. This right. was a, this was like a poison pill. Right? Yeah, but he's a lieutenant. He doesn't know any better, and he's a nice guy, right? Or you know, people perceive that he's a nice guy, mm-hmm. and he gets you know tremendous experience uh, working with citizen soldiers and other kinds of office, different kinds of officers that he's going to end up leading twenty mm-hmm. years later. Yeah, and this is this is really fascinating, you know, from lieutenant to lieutenant general within, you know, roughly about twenty years, twenty twenty three years or so, and so now he's leading, you know, um, leading these people, and so I think that that's really um, his natural qualities, but also he did learn uh, a lot of uh, leadership lessons as as he grew up in the army. And we talk about his learning experiences. Certainly a formative experience was his time as a cadet, a.k.a. a student, at West Point. Uh, in addition to working at the history department at West Point, you were once a cadet. You kind of hinted at that earlier. What That's does true. West Point, yeah, what does West Point teach its men and women about leadership, and how does it teach leadership there? So this is it's an interesting question in the context of talking about Eisenhower and what I just you know what I just explained because West Point uh, has not always taught leadership in the in the same way mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's it's really important in in the early 20th century uh, to understand that at West Point the the philosophy of leader development was much different than it is today yeah so back back then it was basically sink or swim. You know, it, you, you either have what it takes or you don't. Yeah. And you're going to come to West Point and we're going to we're going to make this so hard. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the four years you're going to spend here are so grueling and so refining yeah. that if you graduate, if you survive and graduate, you must be a great leader. <laughs> that, that was kind of the philosophy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and if somehow, you know, you lack character or you lack toughness or you just couldn't handle it, then you you washed out and, and you left and. And everyone was 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 happy for that. Uh, after World War II, kind of kind of coincidentally, Eisenhower tells the academy, "You need to teach human psychology." Oh, interesting. Yes, you, you and, and he wanted psychology taught at West Point in the context of leader development, because you know I, I presume he he saw a lot of you know a yeah. lot of leadership in the war. Uh, some of it good, some of it not so good. Yeah. And he understood that you know you you have to understand men in yeah. today, men and women. You, you yeah. gotta understand what makes people tick. Yeah. How, how do you motivate them to do things that are very unnatural? Yeah. Right? So he he was he was the one who pressed that. 
And eventually, uh, after about 20 years, early 1970s, I believe the Department of Behavioral Science and Leadership was, was formed at West Point. And that faculty really, uh, really did a lot to create a program. So before it was kind of like just dumb luck, you know, we brought you <laughs> yeah. in and somehow, you know, you, you were just so stubborn, you made it and therefore you must be a great leader yeah. to now West Point starting in the 70s is, is now taking a deliberate approach um, to leader development. And it's got to the point today where we have basically um, three things that we want all leaders to get. We want you to live honorably, mm -hmm. le lead honorably. And demonstrate excellence. Those mm -hmm. are the three. Those are the, kind of the three outcomes of leader development. And West Point goes through a very deliberate process of academic education, military training, um, the the discipline you know that you live under, the disciplined regime that you live under for twenty four hours a day, seven days a week for four years. That in our in our experience, and we're constantly assessing this, right? right. But in our right. experience, that that we develop you. So now instead of instead of an attritional model right. of, you know, you make it or you don't, now it's a developmental model where you come to West Point as a cadet, you're here for a reason. Right. West Point West Point saw something in you, some potential, yeah. and now we're gonna refine that and develop it and build you up so that when you graduate you are a leader of character. Uh, but that's that's not that now that's not to say that there isn't attrition. You know, if sure, you if sure. you if you if you demonstrate that intellectually, morally, character-wise, physically, you can't you can't handle it, then um, certainly you know separation from the academy is there. Yeah. But it but it's a very deliberative process. Thanks for explaining that, and that's so fascinating. The role Eisenhower played and how West Point changes how it teaches leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think really so. Cool. Okay, so if we get back to Eisenhower and we jump forward from his cadet years and we jump past the interwar years, we get to 27 years after he graduated West Point. Ike was made the supreme commander in North Africa, as we we're talking about uh, Operation Torch, and then Europe during World War II, where he had to lead a vast multinational force. You, you talked to some of this earlier, but can we get deeper in this? What were the challenges of sure. that task and how did he succeed? Yeah, monumental, monumental challenges that I don't think Eisenhower really had much, um, yeah, you know, much, um, for uh, much of a foretaste of just how difficult this was, this was going going <laughs> to yeah. be. Uh, General George C. Marshall sends Eisenhower uh, to England in, 19, in the summer of 1942, along with uh, another officer named uh, Mark Clark, who was also a West Point mm -hmm. graduate. Mm -hmm. And, and he tells Eisenhower, hey, go go to England and figure out why the British don't want to invade France in 1942. Yeah. Which, you know, the British have been telling Marshall and, and President Roosevelt, you know, all these, all these issues. And, and they're right. You know, they're yeah. not ready to go back. Yeah. <laughs> they, just got, they just got kicked off, you know, in 1940. Yeah. And so Eisenhower's like, Roger, you know, Roger is the army phrase for I understand. I get sure. it. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'll do it. So Roger, sir, uh, I'll go. And Eisenhower goes. And he quickly finds out. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the British are kind of <laughs> right. Um, there, there's a lot of issues. So, yeah. first of all, what we today call power projection. Sure. How, how do you take the the army that the United States is going to make, eight million soldiers, mm -hmm. and how do you move it yeah. to 
to wherever it is that you want to go. In this case, you got to move to England and then you got to move to France. So, you know, where are the ships? Uh, there's, there's, a funny, there's a funny story that Eisenhower tells about, you know, when I die, I want to get buried in an LST. And an LST stands for a landing ship tank. Yeah. Because for the next three years, that's all he's going to think about are LSTs. <laughs> where, where are they? And, yeah. why is, and why won't the Navy build more? Okay, mm. because the Navy wants to build aircraft carriers, battleships, and submarines. Right. the The Army wants the Navy to build LSTs. Yes. <laughs> because unless you have LSTs, you can't go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, he, so power projection. How are we going to get all these troops into the into the fight? Uh, logistics. It, it's gr- it's great that I have you know millions of soldiers ready to fight, but if I don't have tens of millions of rations, right. hundreds of tens of millions of gallons of gas, ammunition, trucks, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not going to matter. I have to be able to sustain whatever force I project, whatever power I project to North Africa or to, Fran- to Italy or to France or wherever, I have to be able to sustain it. And then I got my British allies – who have a very different, you know, a different culture, different experience right. uh, with fighting. Uh, I've got the French, who also bring a very different culture and experience of fighting. And then I got the Germans. You know, the, the Germans are not just going to let me do what I want to do. I, I have to. Mm-hmm. So he, Eisenhower's got to kind of triangulate, you know, all all of these um, these people. And then it's leadership. Who who who's going to command? You know, and mm-hmm. who who are gonna, who are going to be Eisenhower's principal deputies? Yeah, uh, and, you know, who's going to be in charge of the air war and the, and the naval forces and the ground forces and and all of that? All of these issues take time to a identify and b then then resolve. Right. So time is is another you know challenge that that he that he's got. So you know how does how does he kind of deal with all of this? Uh, Eisenhower's he, He's, I would call him a people person. Yeah. He, he, he liked uh, engaging personally uh, with others. He spent, he spent countless hours with Winston Churchill. And, he, and, and Churchill would just go on and on and on and on. You know, a meeting for Churchill starts at 8 o'clock, and, and Eisenhower is like, okay, that's great. I can wake up at 6. I can have breakfast. I can shoot around a golf. Yeah. And, oh, no, sir, we've been 8 at night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Eight at night. You'll have dinner with, with Winston, mm-hmm. with the prime minister, right? Yeah. And that'll last until about ten o'clock. <laughs> and then and then you'll you'll do some you'll smoke cigars until about eleven o'clock at night. And then the map boards will come out and, <laughs> and then the briefing will start, right? That the meeting starts at eleven PM. Yeah. And will last until two AM or three AM. Oh my right? goodness. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so very quickly Eisenhower's like, oh, this is this is horrible. <laughs> but but he knows that he has to do this because if he can get Churchill right. to to see his point of view, that that helps solve a lot of problems. Yeah. Uh, he he does this with everybody, right? So this is critically important. Uh detailed planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one of his favorite aphorisms was plans are useless, <laughs> but plan but planning is essential. Huh. And, and so what he meant by that is, you know, w- w- when you when you have the plan and you go into action against the enemy, it, it's you throw it out because yeah. everything changes, right? Yeah. 
but the details and the detailed discussions and the coordination and the troubleshooting that you go through to make a plan is what's right. going to save the day because that gives you flexibility yeah. and 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 the ability to improvise right maybe maybe the tanks you know the tanks are over on this beach on the left and you really need them over on the right but at least they're on the beach that's on the left. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not in South Carolina or something because you right. planned for that, right? Yeah. And so, and so he just – he gets into details. Yeah. And he does this as a president too. You know, he, I think he gets an unfair uh, reputation as being this right. kind of chairman of the board, hands off. I'm going to go play golf. You know, a, a lot of that is, is from his political opponents, both Republicans and Democrats, particularly mm. the Kennedy administration, who tried mm. to, you know, contrast this youthful, vigorous John F. Kennedy mm. with mm. this older, you know, I only have time to play golf. But in fact, Eisenhower is in the – he's in details. Yeah. And he does that in his presidency. Uh, when um, when uh, France, uh, Gary Powers is shot down in the U-2 over sure. the Soviet Union. Yeah. Eisenhower and he Eisenhower takes responsibility for that because he was involved in setting that program up, right. which, which is really really strange that you know you would think the CIA kind of does their own thing, but mm -hmm. he, he he was he he knew you know he he knew where the plane was going to be he knew what the risks were he knew what the program was about he was into those details, well he does the same thing in in the Second World War, and I think the, you know the advantage that it gives to him is is you can't. You can't BS him, right? You can't, you can't uh, BS him. You know, sell him a line of uh, of bovine excrement. <laughs> uh, Patton tries to do that a lot, and you know, tries to kind of give him a hand wave of, uh, you know, we need to do this. And then Eisenhower would say to Patton, uh, "Georgie, you only have fifty thousand gallons of gas. How are you mm. going to get across the Rhine River?" Yeah, and then Georgie would get all mad, right? But he was right. <laughs> Eisenhower knew the details. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and, so, and so you know, knowing the details and being involved and having these personal relationships went a long way uh, to tackling you know all these problems that that we were talking about. You, you mentioned a lot of the challenges that were made up here: the logistics, the details of all these things. What was like superpower as a military leader? You know, if he had one, was it this? Was it was it just he's great at reading weather reports before D Day? You know, what were his strengths and what were his weaknesses? <laughs> you, you're going to find this answer funny. Uh, Eisenhower was great poker player, uh <laughs> and, and I'm not I'm not making this up. When yeah. he was a cadet at West yeah. Point, gambling was prohibited, right? But cadets okay. gambled. They played cards anyway, yeah. and they would keep they'd they'd keep a ledger of you know Joe owes me five, I oh. owe bet you know Jim yeah. ten, and at the end of the four years, Eisenhower is collecting money from every, from everybody. <laughs> okay, he he was great at poker. He could read people. Mm -hmm. He knew he knew when he was being bluffed. Mm -hmm. And and knowing he's being bluffed, he could bluff in return, and he was an excellent bluffer if he had to be. How interesting! Yeah. He also he also knew when he was holding you know the royal flush. Yeah. And and you were holding a pair of deuces. Yeah. Right. But he would make you think that you were holding you know the high cards until <laughs> until you know he needed to really put it put the wood down and and, and have his way. So he, he was really good at, at reading people, and um, I, I guess you could say it's a, it, 
kind of manipulative. It's but, influencing. Yeah, what is manipulative? It's yeah. influencing, right? Yeah. But he he was very he was very careful not to he he wouldn't take advantage of people for Got his own it. personal for his own personal gain. Yeah. It, it really was about how, how do I how do I manage a difficult person? Yeah. To get them to to pull you know pull their weight for the for the common good. Yeah. But, but he, he, he's, and this comes in handy, you know, throughout, throughout his life. Yeah. Uh, he loved military history mm-hmm. and he, and because of his study of military history, he understood strategy and the application of force. And, and I think, you know, he, he understood this in ways that for others, they kind of looked on the surface, but he understood that you know beneath beneath the power projection, for example, there is the logistics, and and if you don't solve the logistics problem, um, you know guys like Douglas MacArthur, you can draw arrows on a map all day long, and it's great, it's bold, it's brilliant, but if you don't have the logistics behind it, it's it's worthless. Yeah, uh, and, and he he was he was very good at understanding kind of the underlying uh, problems of strategy. That you need the, the the non-sexy parts that you need to figure out before right. you before you launch an invasion, uh, and, and then and I mentioned before the planning, you know, the detailed planning. Yeah, um, right. I think I think it was his characteristic to leave nothing to chance, mm. and kind of a corollary to that was to take no unnecessary risks, mm. and um, and it, this this kind of makes him vulnerable to some criticism, especially after the war. He gets taken to task by. Uh, Patton, for one, uh, Montgomery, and some other British officers that, well, you know, Eisenhower was too conservative. You know, he should have he should have launched, you know, the the narrow thrust to capture Berlin. Right. And you know, and Eisenhower's position was, okay, well, hold on a second. Uh, since when, in all of our experience, have the Germans panicked? Mm. Right. The Germans are surprised frequently, but they never panic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of this, uh, you know, you, you need you need to take a risk was predicated on an assumption that the Germans right. would be so surprised they would panic and not respond or respond, you know, ineffectively. Right. And right. Eisenhower Eisenhower would say, mm, I, "I don't think that's I don't think that's the case." Yeah, <laughs> you know, he, he's meeting the poker player at the German army. <laughs> right. Says, Those yes. guys aren't going to fall for this. Yeah. That's right. They're and they're not going to fold, and they're yeah. and they're going to ante up. You know. And so, uh, uh, he so he he understands risk, mm-hmm. and he understands that. For example, in in 1944, when the argument is made that uh, you know the, the the Western Allies should make a drive to Berlin, right? Uh, even in, even in 1945, probably more more so in 1945, um, that we could get to Berlin first, you know, ahead of the Soviet Union, and then Eisenhower would say, oh, okay, we we could do that. Uh, Ten thousand more Allied soldiers dead, mm-hmm. and we made an agreement with the Soviets in January that they're going to have Berlin in their occupation zone. Mm-hmm. So you know who who wants who wants to go sell this to your public? Right, right, right. Ten thousand more killed in action, so that we could you know ha- so that we could feel good about ourselves that we captured Berlin right. and not the Soviets. Right. And and I think I think that was that was a good call, you know. Yeah. Um when as president, he gets kind of put in a similar situation when it comes to Vietnam. 
Yeah. And I, I think he's, his calculus is kind of the same of, okay, um, you know, Vietnam, like Berlin, is a, is a geographical objective. It's a territorial objective. I, I don't care about territory. Mm. I, care about, I care about people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and the evidence for this is Eisenhower's soldiers knew this. Mm. I think they instinctively knew that Eisenhower was not going to throw away their lives. He, he he would he would put them at risk. He would ask them to do things that were risky. Yeah, yeah. you know, people are going to die and get hurt, but it was not going to be unnecessary risk. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so let's jump and let's advance from Eisenhower the general to the presidency. Okay. And, and my first curiosity is, is there anything he took from his military experience directly into how he ran his administration? Uh, for example, I think of how historians often point to George Washington's cabinet and say, oh, that kind of looks like a war council a general has. The presidential mm-hmm. cabinet totally is something borrowed from the army. Is there anything in Ike's administration that you can similarly point to and say he brought this from his experience in the army? Yeah, I, I think you can, and and that would be uh, as as a supreme commander, as a very high level you know military commander, Eisenhower. He he needed he needed to set a vision. Mm-hmm. You know what what, what, are we, what are we trying to do? What, what's our mission, right? And along with that vision, there would come uh, expectations. This is this is what I want you to do, and this is what I want you to do. And then he would have to delegate. And, and essentially, kind of, kind of let go of right. of of the authority of the power and let subordinates, you know, fulfill the expectations, right? But but even so, the boss owns the owns the decision. You know, the the buck right. stops here. You know, yeah. Truman popularized that saying, and I think for Eisenhower, the president, it was it was the same thing. And I brought up the U two incident earlier. Right. It was the right. you know same thing. It, Eisenhower recognized that this was my, um, you know, I, I own this, but I'm going to allow people, my subordinates, to to do what they need to do. And I think largely, you know, during his presidency, he he, he did this. He operated on 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 this principle. Um, for example, in the um, when when Eisenhower was a lieutenant, again going back into yeah. I think it was 1919, he's put in charge of a mission. To drive coast to coast, right from yeah. from yeah. Washington D.C. to San Francisco, yeah. And uh, you know what? What are the roads like in 1919? Well, the first day, I think in three hours they drove 40 miles, and and that was about, and they had to stop. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it takes it takes weeks to travel yeah. across across the country because the road network is just is just horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Eisenhower is in Europe, he sees the German autobahns. Sure. And yeah. and and when he becomes president, he he realizes okay, logistics really important, transportation really important. Yeah. I have a vision that in in the United States, it was it's not going to take weeks to move <laughs> from one coast to the next. Yeah. We need we need an autobahn style highway system in America, and that's and that's the interstate system. Uh, which has a, a very peculiar rule that every five miles, there has to be one mile of straight pavement. Really? 
because that's where airplanes can land. No kidding. <laughs> in the event of in the event of no of no kidding, you know, yeah. we are under attack and we yeah. need a landing strip. There's going to be an interstate where every five miles, you know, there's some exceptions if you're in the mountains and mountains, such. Yeah, right? sure, sure. Planes aren't going to be trying to land. But I if you ever not. wondered why, when you're driving across Missouri or Nebraska, it's like, man, I could just put the steering wheel on on hold yeah. and go forever. Well, that that's why, and and that was his vision. And and you know, he he set the requirement, the expectation. Okay, Secretary of Transportation, go make that happen. And and he did. And, and you know, it, it changed it changed the face of America. It did. It did. Um, uh, so, one one last one last thing is yeah. the chief of staff position. Oh, you know, yeah, in modern in modern politics, we hear about the chief of staff all the time. It's like the yeah. second most famous individual in the White House. Eisenhower creates that position as the chief of staff. Previously, presidents like Roosevelt and Truman they had had what what they called a personal secretary, right, who essentially right. who essentially did did the chief of staff's job. Yeah. But when Eisenhower shows up, he's, he creates the position chief of staff, and every president since then has had a chief of staff. And, and that's directly imported from Eisenhower's military experience. Fascinating. Yeah, one of the most important roles in the White House that keeps everything yeah. running. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so when Ike became president, he inherited a war in Korea. And there were some, like Douglas MacArthur, who you mentioned earlier, who advocated expanding the war. But Ike sought to end it quickly. Why was Ike keen to end that war, and why did he think the folks who wanted to expand it were wrong? Yeah, getting Eisenhower to run for the presidency was a fairly long journey. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> uh, one one of Eisenhower's um, characteristics, you know, going back a little bit in, in our conversation, was. He was he was very ambitious. He was extremely ambitious. You have you have to be if you're going to reach that level. But it was kind of an understated ambition. In other words, he didn't wear it on his sleeve. For a long time, both parties are looking at Eisenhower, saying, "Ah, oh, he'd be he'd be great. You know, he'd be a great Democrat. Is, is he a Democrat? <laughs> right. I don't know. He'd be a great Republican." Is he a Republican? I, I don't know. You know, no one could really no one could really pin him down. And and he himself, you know, comes to the decision to run for president um, fairly fairly late. Uh, yeah. In, in yeah, I think it's early 1952. But I think he he does it because he sees he sees the war in Korea as as um, an, an aberration of American foreign policy hmm. and and how and how the United States should respond. In this new environment of of the Cold War, sure. You know, as a supreme commander, you know, we talked earlier about you know he he would risk his lives, the lives of his men for for um, significant objectives, but he would not unnecessarily risk them. I think when he looked at Korea, he 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 under, he, he understood what was at stake, but it's nineteen fifty two. You know the Korean War has been going on for two years, and and the line, you know, the battle lines are literally almost exactly where they were when the war started. Yes. So from from Eisenhower's perspective, um, you know, if you're going to go to war, if it's that serious that you're going to go to war and put American lives at risk, you you have to fight to win. And you know, MacArthur said the same thing, and other people, you know, said the same thing. But Eisenhower's coming at it from a from a different perspective. Uh, in Korea, which is Europe is the primary theater. 
uh, of the conflict of the Cold War. Now, MacArthur disagreed. A lot of Republicans disagreed. You know, there was there was some controversy about that. But from Eisenhower's view, and this is from when he was, you know, Supreme Allied Commander, and then he's the commander of NATO. He's the first right. commander of, of NATO. Yeah. Uh, he recognizes that, you know, if, if Europe goes down the toilet, it doesn't matter what happens in, in Korea. Yeah. So, so he's a Europe, he's a Europe first kind of, kind of, um, kind of individual. And especially when he becomes president, that's, that's where he believes the priority needs to be. And so the war in Korea need, needs to be, uh, wrapped up. I think he also saw Korea as a diversion of resources. Mm-hmm. You know, we're expending a lot of, of treasure and, uh, and blood in, in a theater where, we, where our stated objective is, is not to win. It's to gain an armistice, to gain a st- uh, to reestablish the status quo, which is which is a it is a positive objective. I mean, it we we do win Korea. A lot of people yeah. don't they don't believe that or they don't understand that, but we did get what we wanted to get. Yeah, our it objectives just took, were realized. It, yeah, exactly. Our objectives didn't include North Korea. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it took three years to do it, and. You know, 30, 33,000, 37,000 American lives. It's like, okay, there has to be a, a more economical way to, to confront the Soviet Union. Um, so, you know, and by 1952, I think Eisenhower, he's kind of seen, hey, we, we, we got what we wanted, you know. Right. And so let's, let's, wrap, let's wrap this up. Um, so I, I think that, that's where he was coming from. Um, obviously, you know, with with MacArthur and and even some of the commanders, Mark Clark, who's who's a supreme yeah. commander in Korea. Yeah. Um, Mark Clark is kind of surprised when Eisenhower visits in in December 1952, just after the election, uh, that Eisenhower's not like, yeah, let's let's go, you know, whoop on on the North Koreans and the Chinese, mm-hmm. um, because Eisenhower saw that uh, the sooner the war ended, the better it would be uh, under the conditions that. That obtained at at the time. Yeah, and, and you know, it, I feel like that's really surprising to a lot of people that Eisenhower would have that opinion because there's maybe mm-hmm. a tendency to think a, a president who was a general is kind of like a guy with a hammer. You know, if you yeah. have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. If you were a right. general, you might think every problem needs a military solution. Yeah. So he winds on the Korean War. Where does he see that military tool fitting in his international tool belt? Yeah, uh, I, I think he would look at war as a necessary evil it it is it is a tool of last resort i think a lot of this goes goes to his early childhood background his his father was of uh, mennonite uh descent Mm. um Mm -hmm. uh, you know essentially a pacifist right uh his his mother was a jehovah's witness um so i think you know growing up he 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 really imbibed a, a lot of distaste for for war and and violence in general, which is like okay. So why did you go to West Point? Yeah, interesting profession choice. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, so Eisenhower, um, that story I can just tell it really briefly. I, he lives in Abilene, Kansas, and he is desperate to leave town. <laughs> he, it's like get me out of Abilene. And he knew his father's uh, salary. They had six six sons, you know, a very very poor family. He knew his yeah. father was already supporting one son at college. He knew he could not support another. So how do I get out of Kansas? Uh, and a friend of his said, "Hey, uh, join the Naval Academy. They they pay for your education for free." Uh, eventually, he finds West Point right. and free education. It gets me out of Abilene. Good deal. He, 
<laughs> he doesn't tell his parents, I, I think, until like the next, the day before he leaves. You know, it's a real <laughs> shock to the family that, that he's going to do this. Oh but he, he, he's, off, he's off to West Point. But as a soldier, yep. you know, as a soldier, he, he was always profoundly affected when he, he went to the battlefront. Yeah, and and when he saw, you know, th- this is this was D Day. You know, this was the cost to get to to France to break into Europe to destroy the Nazi army, and, and it was a horrible it was a horrible cost. And so I think that, um, yeah, if if need be, we'll 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 do it. We'll we'll do World War Three, but if we don't have to, uh, he doesn't want he doesn't want to do that. And. Uh, yeah. Again, it it goes back to you know what what what's what's America's principal um, power? It's it's economic might. It's industrial mm-hmm. and, eco- and economic might. Uh, yeah. We proved that in World War One. We proved it in World War Two. You know, this the Soviet Union you know, bleeds the most in that war, but they stay in the war because the Americans send them trucks, right. cargo right. planes, food. You know all the logistics again. It's the logistics, right? right? They fought the fight, but we we sustained them. And looking at Korea, I think Eisenhower sees mm. sees the same thing. He he goes to Korea in December, yeah. like I said. Uh, he he shows very little enthusiasm for uh, the American plan to you know we're going to win the war with you know a big attack. But he comes away very impressed with a Korean general named Park Sun Yup, huh. and Park Sun Yup. Park Sun-yup is briefing the president-elect and basically says, Mr. President-elect, if America gives us the guns, we will do the fighting. Eisenhower is like, right on. That, that's how it should be. Right? Yeah. Yeah. People should be willing to defend themselves. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's he, he sees that as being America's role in the Cold War is – we will be the arsenal for democracy. Yeah, we we will sustain and support other peoples to fight their own fights, right? Yeah. And and in Korea, he saw firsthand the Koreans were in it; they were going to fight and defend themselves. When we fast forward to Vietnam, and I know we'll talk about Vietnam a little bit later. Up next, yeah, <laughs> it's it's not so much, and 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 Eisenhower is really reluctant. You know, how much commitment are we going to give to? Uh, first, French Indochina, and then secondly, right. South Vietnam, uh, before they demonstrate, you know, their will to to fight for themselves. And, and let's get into Vietnam because he might not have started any new wars, but he did send military advisors to Vietnam. And and building on everything you're just saying about how he thought of war and supporting allies and whatnot, what were these advisors doing, and what was Ike hoping yeah. to accomplish in Vietnam? So, so the advisory mission actually begins with President Truman. Oh, okay. And and it's a byproduct of the Korean War. You know, mm-hmm. when when the North Koreans invade in in 1950, you know, suddenly there's this kind of of opening up of a- Asia is 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 in peril. Yeah. You know, the China China's gone communist in 1949, right. Right. and we we kind of hoped that it would stay there. You know, it was just kind of stop. And now Korea. Uh, Indochina, you know, the, the French are having some issues there. So Truman extends, you know, some military aid uh, to the French in, in Indochina. Well, one of the kind of one of the, the dirty secrets of, of military aid and assistance is you can send money, you can send stuff. Eventually, you've got to send people 
to administer the money mm. and take care of the stuff. Got it. Okay. <laughs> right? So a lot of these advisors were were advisors in a sense of they're they're technicians. Yeah. Right. Got it. So they're helping they're helping the French maintain the aircraft Got it. Uh, after the after the French leave in 1955, I think it is. And we're supporting the ZM, the ZM regime in, in right. South Vietnam. It's okay. Here, here's the rifles, the machine guns, the vehicles. This is how you how you take care of it. This is how you use it. You know, people would be fascinated to know how much training it takes to drive an army jeep. Yeah, <laughs> because we don't think about it. When my car needs oil, I drive to Valvoline. And they take right. care of everything. Yeah. Well, the yeah. army doesn't have Valvoline. The army has soldiers, <laughs> right. and the soldiers have to do the maintenance on the vehicle. And that's all the vehicles. You know, it's a comp- yeah. yeah, it's a complicated thing, and, and right. So, so we had to send these advisors, technicians, you know, whatever you want to call them, uh, to help the French and then the South Vietnamese um, take care of their stuff. Right. Uh, we sent advisors to, you know. Ad- advise the South Vietnamese. This is how you run a country. Mm, mm-hmm. You know they don't. They don't know. This is how you organize an army. This is how you run an army. This is how you train an army. So, so advisors are doing those kinds of things: organization, training, uh, equipment maintenance, and stuff like that. The problem with advice with an advisory mission mm-hmm. is the people you're advising need to want your advice. Uh, mm-hmm. In Korea, this this worked out pretty well, okay. and I think Eisen, Eisenhower is looking at Korea as being a good model. I, I, I my first book is about is yeah. about the American advisory mission to to the Koreans, and, and that seems to work. That seemed to work out fine. You know, yeah. even now, sixty years later, right, right, yeah, seventy years later, South Korea is doing pretty pretty well, right. So Vietnam, we're, we're not quite sure yet how how that's going to work out, but Korea is the model, so we try to replicate that um, in Vietnam. But but Eisenhower, Eisenhower, I think, is a realist. Uh, he he sees you know by nineteen fifty six fifty seven that uh, politically he he has to support South Vietnam in some way, mm-hmm. and sending advisors. I think it's it's about seven hundred fifty uh, that are there when by the time he leaves office. That's that's a cheap way to show support, political support. Uh, acknowledging legitimacy yeah. of of the South Vietnam uh, South Vietnamese government, um, but but he he's not sending troops combat. He's not sending combat troops. Well, right. He, he right. drew he draw yeah he draws the the line at, at that. Uh, yeah, he's not an ideologue. Unfortunately, his Secretary of State John Foster Dulles is hmm. okay, and it's really Dulles who drives. Dulles browbeats the Pentagon into supporting a advisory mission. The Army doesn't want to do it. The Joint Chiefs don't want to do it. The Secretary, yeah. the the State Department wants wants to do it. And um, you know Eisenhower about this time, fifty seven, fifty eight. Eisenhower gives a speech where he talks about the domino theory. Right. 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 And, and 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 I think he believes it. He you know it, it makes sense to him that you have to stop the progress of communism somewhere. Yeah. But it, but the domino theory is not is not the paradigm that he looks at the world. Mm. For a Secretary of State Dulles, I think it is. Interesting. And so Dulles Dulles kind of refers to the domino theory as as the plan of action. Is this needs to animate us, whereas 
Eisenhower is, is a little bit more reserved and, and wants to take it more slowly huh. than, than other people would. But th that, that's, that's kind of how we get involved, and, and that's, I think, what Eisenhower was hoping to do was to show political support. But not get pulled in too deep. But, but not get pulled in too deep, right. So I'm curious, because Eisenhower lived until 1969, and I'm curious, do we have any sense of whether he agreed with JFK and LBJ's escalation of American involvement in Vietnam? And, and to put numbers there for context, there were fewer than 1,000 uh, advisors or soldiers in Vietnam when Ike left office in 1961. That's right. That's there right. were around 16,000 when JFK was assassinated in 1963. And then there was the high watermark of roughly 540,000 or a half million around the time of Ike's death in 1969, uh, which is also around the time LBJ was leaving office. So right. small involvement under Ike, bigger under JFK, and way bigger under LBJ. What did he think of, of what Vietnam was becoming? Uh, well, he, he, was, he was opposed to a, a major commitment of, of combat forces. Uh, I think it, you know, he would have felt it, it was a diversion. Uh, it, was, it was wasteful. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of other other ways to spend. You know, not only the money but also the the manpower uh, in in the global contest against the Soviet Union. Uh, that so it's not to say that he was not you know a cold warrior. He was. Right. He, he right. understood that we needed to to confront the Soviet Union. But again, he he believed that America's economic might was uh, was the best weapon. And he also recognized that it was a wasting asset if not carefully cultivated. Mm -hmm. And and I think that he, that he would have, or you know, he actually did, you know, say that you know th this is this is a drain on on our most valuable resource that is utterly ineffective. Right. Because you know the worst thing to fighting a colonial war is fighting somebody else's colonial war. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, if, if we weren't going to go all in to save the French, right? When the French give defeat, why would we then take their place? It it just makes it makes no sense, you know, from a from a uh, foreign policy logic um, perspective. And then add to that, it's not only somebody else's colonial war; it's a guerrilla war. Right. So. You know, somebody and here, here's Eisenhower. Pre, here's President Eisenhower, the general, right, talking right. to his generals. Okay, generals, how do I know that we're winning? Right. How do I know when we've won? Yeah. <laughs> right. It it could be twenty years. It could be thirty years before we even know that that we've won the conflict. Right. Yeah. So j that that would have been completely, you know, beyond what Eisenhower would have been been willing to tolerate. Do you think he would have wanted to cut bait and get out of Vietnam then when it becomes clear it's either it's either a lot of US troops or you leave? Yeah. So uh, so th this is it's kind of an unfortunate, you know, instance where Eisenhower, you know, I, he he gets asked, you know, the people yeah. are talking to him, you know, what right. what should we do? And the advice he gives to LBJ is, well, you're in the war, you got to win. Uh, and and you know Westmoreland says he needs X amount of men. Well, then you know you you probably need to give it to him. Yeah. But but that's but it's not that's not the advice he wanted to give. Yeah. You know, so he that, would have rather kinda, not get that big. But exactly. The time it is exactly. 
by by the time someone gets around to asking him his advice, <laughs> you know, yeah. the 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 options are are constrained, and 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 that's I think that's just kind of how he felt. You know, back back to the World War II model, yeah, is you know. We don't go after useless territorial objectives. Right. Uh, we we economize on the lives of our men, but the best way to to do that is win the war as soon as you can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's true. So, but uh, it, it would have been. I, I think that. I, I think. You know, he he probably would have been heartbroken. Yeah. You know, had he lived another five years or so and seen how the war actually yeah. ends. Yeah. Uh, Ike also sent troops to Little Rock, Arkansas when a white racist mob tried to block the integration of a public school there. And now I think we can all agree the cause was just to protect nine African-American students who just wanted to go to school. But it must have been a heck of a decision to deploy U.S. troops on U.S. soil, potentially against U.S. civilians. Do we have any sense of how Ike weighed and made that decision? Yeah. Uh, Eisenhower believed in the rule of law. And in 1954, the Supreme Court ruled, Brown versus the Board of Education, that um, in, that segregated schools was unconstitutional. Right. And, and Eisenhower, to him, this was very clear. <laughs> whatever you, whatever you think, you know, your whatever you think your loyalties are, or, or how you think you know the society should be constructed or the world should be, this the Supreme Court of the land has said this is the law. And and you need and you need to follow it. Um, personally, Eisenhower favored, I think, a slow kind of a slow roll on on civil rights, mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. but but only as a means to reduce tension. Right. right. I, I think it's clear that that he recognized clearly the the injustice of segregation. Uh, he he knew black soldiers, you know, very well from from the war. He he knew what they that that they were, you know, good true Americans. Uh, when their country needed them, they they responded, and I think that he was he was sympathetic to to getting civil rights progress um, in America. But he was but he's a realist, right? He's not an ideologue. He's a realist. He understood that you know there were going to be segments in in the United States where this was going to be a hard. A hard uh, pill to swallow, but again, falling back on his military experience, he likes to lead by consensus. Okay, personal engagement. So he brings Governor Fabus of Arkansas. You know, right. ha- has him has him come over. You know, let, let me let me talk to this guy and <laughs> yeah. and try to try to you know get some get some consensus on on how on how we can do this. It's going to happen. Yeah, your schools are going to integrate. How they integrate, Governor Fabus, I'm willing to give you some opportunity to, to make this, you know, less painful. Uh, Fabus gives like the finger. He he tells him to, you know, take a hike. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we're not doing it. And so now Eisenhower is faced with a, a really easy decision. I have a duty to enforce the law. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do it with overwhelming force. Mm. <laughs> That's that's how you do. That's how you solve. You know, if the problem's a nail, I'm bringing the hammer, not my Nerf gun. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and I'm not bringing my kids. You know, play toy hammer. I'm bringing I'm bringing the sledgehammer. Yeah. Uh, so okay. So overwhelming display of power is, is of force. So, so you know, some people in his cabinet wanted to send the marshals or send the FBI. You know, sure. kind of they they wanted it to be hey, low key. You know, right. let's, 
but Eisenhower is like, no, I, I want to send a message. Yeah. And, um, you know, he sends the 101st Airborne Division. Amazing. Which is like, okay, of all, of all the soldiers, <laughs> right, yeah. that you could pick in the world, he picks the 101st. And I think that was deliberate. Yeah. You know, there's a the very famous photograph of him on June 5th talking to soldiers. They're all around. They're all surrounding him. And uh, I think he's, he's given them, you know, he's given them the real story about some of you are not going to come back. Mm. But, mm. but this needs to be done because we're going to destroy Nazi Germany. Right. And I think that he, he calls on this, this, this division again because he knows that this is so important. Mm-hmm. That I need, I need the optics of this division mm-hmm. to be at the forefront of, of solving of solving this problem. Yeah, right. And uh, remember, Ike's a good poker player. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. he knows he knows he's got the royal flush, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he knew that Fabus had nothing because the other yeah. thing that Eisenhower does is he federalizes the Arkansas National Guard. Right. Right. Right, and so this was something that so- Southern governors would do to to kind of get around the rules, is they would use. Right. I got right. I got my right. army troops right? right. Well, when they get federalized, they're now working for Eisenhower. He's the commander in chief. Yeah. So he he tells the Arkansas National Guard, "Okay, guys, go back to your go back to your barracks. You go home. Yeah. <laughs> we we got this." And uh, so he he really does kind of take. He he takes whatever cards Fabus thought he had and say, like, okay, chuck them because because they're no good. Here's here's my my royal flush, and, um, and you know, the people play works. Yeah, and it, you know people underestimated him. Yeah, and and I think it's because they didn't they didn't see the ambition, they didn't see the resolve because like I said, he had a very understated kind of public persona of you right. know being this nice guy. Um, but the reality is that Ike was not shy about flexing muscle if he was sure that he was right. And in this case, he, he knew that he was, and he knew that, uh, duty required it. And he, and if, and, and his view, if I'm going to flex, I'm going to win. Right. And that's why, and, and that's why it's 101st that goes, yeah. that goes to Little Rock and, and does, the, does what they did. In Eisenhower's farewell address. He famously warns to beware the military-industrial complex. Why did Eisenhower end with this message, and what did he mean by it? This is this has stumped people for a long time, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, it goes back to oh, he's a general, you know. He should he right. should love you know the army. Um, <laughs> by by the end of his tenure, the army did not love Eisenhower. Oh, drama. <laughs> yes. Yes, because again, you know, when when money when money is your weapon system, mm. uh, his view was I need the most bang for my buck. And in the 1950s that meant atomic weapons. Mm. So the the Air Force, the Air Force gets a lot of love when it comes to the Pentagon budgets, uh followed very closely by the Navy. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they can drop atomic bombs. The mm. army, not not so much. Right. <laughs> so the army, real the army is getting the short end of the budgetary stick for for several years in a row. Yeah, uh, until the late fifties, the army figures this out and they start putting atomic in front of every weapon system that they got. <laughs> it's like, hey, we can we can do that too. It, it gets it gets so ridiculous, Kenny, that the army is creating atomic mortars. Yeah, 
<laughs> so a, mor- a mortar lobs right. a shell maybe a thousand yards, two thousand yards, and it's gonna blow up. You know, like There's Hiroshima. Nothing comic about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like that's really dumb, right? We had yeah, atomic yeah. backpacks that you know the, the youngest lieutenant in the battalion would wear the backpack with the atomic bomb on it. It's like it got it got crazy, but yeah. that's how desperate the army was to get to get funding. Right? Wow. Yeah, in, in those years. So I just that that's kind of just a setup. <laughs> what what okay. what Eisenhower is gonna gonna say? Yeah, uh, Eisenhower had, he had a tremendously varied background as a young officer. He he was stationed mm-hmm. in Texas, Pennsylvania, Washington D.C., uh, Washington State, um, in uh, Pennsylvania, and in Panama, and in the Philippine Islands. So he he's seen a lot of of America. Uh, he's seen some of America's overseas possessions, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, and uh, and so he 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 saw you know what American potential mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. and I think it it also it also gave him kind of a sensitive appreciation for Americans. Mm-hmm. He he did not want Americans to be a militarized people. Mm. He 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 liked Americans as as we were. Yeah. <laughs> Peaceable, hardworking, you know, minding our own business, and, uh, and and building building the American dream that I think that he saw and wanted that to to extend to everybody. Uh, in the 1930s, he had an interesting job, which was to be responsible for industrial mobilization planning. Interesting. Uh, this was this this was something that in World War One uh, we we kind of had to improvise until we figured out that we needed to centralize. The industrial planning. Yeah. How do you do a war economy to, to get all? Yeah, the exactly. Working, exactly. Well, in 1930, he's the guy tasked to okay, uh, you know, the Great Depression has just started, and so <laughs> the federal government's like, okay, you know, what? How, how do we do this? Yeah. We we don't run command economies. You know, we, right. we just don't have any experience with this. So he he's he's put in he's been put in charge of that, and so he he knows industry, mm-hmm. and he knows industries potential to um uh, i'm, I'm going to be indelicate i'm going to say to fleece the american people mm-hmm. through government contracts yeah, <laughs> he, sure. he, he, under, he, he understands that the potential that's there if it if it gets out of control right and then as the supreme commander he he obviously sees you know america's industrial um industrial might personally i think he, he's he's a very frugal Man, mm-hmm. he grew up very poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he went to college only because he found a free education, and and like I said, you know, living in the places that he lived, you know, he saw that th- this was a val- this was an American value, frugality, mm-hmm. and not prodigality. Um, and so I think in in many ways, you know, he wanted to preserve the America that he loved, mm-hmm. and not and not not militarize it and not saddle it with debt. And in mm-hmm. a, a militarized economy, or an or an economy that was reliant on military kinds of um, production, right? Right. Because you know he he saw how easily um, that could seduce you know political political figures, you know whether Absolutely. it's in fascist Italy, fascist Germany, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and he understood, you know, government government spending. There was a role for government spending. Building the highways is one of them, right? right. But if if left unchecked, if no one's kind of minding the store, 
you know, there's, there's always going to be some some industry or entrepreneurial entrepreneur who says, "Hey, give me a billion dollars and I can do this." Right? Well, as a you know, congressman once famously said, "A billion dollars here, a billion dollars there." Pretty soon, it starts to add up to real money. <laughs> and, right? And and if you if you're frugal, yeah, and you're spending real money, then what does that mean? You gotta have you gotta tax. Yeah. Real money, right? Yeah. You got to put a you got to put a financial burden on Americans, and and Eisenhower doesn't want to do that. So I, I think it's a long answer, but I think that all of those it's a multifaceted um, portrait that we get of Eisenhower as he's talking about the dangers of a military industrial complex. It it, it was not it was not a, a knee jerk kind of reaction. Right. This was something that he felt really deeply. And um, and coming out of the presidency, he he realized that you know this is potentially a problem. The last question I have for you is: What lessons in leadership can we learn from Eisenhower? Great, great question. I'm glad you saved it for last. Uh, I think that as we look at Eisenhower's his whole life, and um, and what he did, you know, as an officer and president. Uh, we learn that self self preparation is is crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you have you have to study the problem. You have to be uh, well read, you know, well versed. Uh, Eisenhower, kind of unusually, when he's president, he does a lot of his own diplomacy, mm. and uh, you know he meets with with Khrushchev, he meets with De Gaulle, he meets with Churchill, he he meets with all the, all these people, right? Yeah. And um, to to do that and to do it effectively, you, you got to do your homework, right? And so he 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 was um, he was very very good at at that, at um, self preparation, and it allowed him to you know he could study the problem, he could go through the planning process, which he he realized was essential, and have a plan, and then when that plan of engagement, you know, there's yeah, there's more than one one meeting that he goes to a cruise ship that j- it just blows up. You know, it's like, oh wow, that's that's not gonna work. <laughs> but what's Plan B? You know, what 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 preparation did I do that? Okay, I'm not talking to cruise ship, but I'm gonna go to Paris and I'm gonna see De Gaulle, and then I'm gonna, you know, he was able to be flexible and, and take advantage of of opportunities. Uh, I think secondly, uh, a lesson is to say what you mean mm. and then mean it. Mm-hmm. Say what you mean and mean it, and mm-hmm. th- that's when talking to an adversary or when talking to a friend. Uh, he and George Patton were were friends for a long, long time after World War One, in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, they spent a lot of time together. They had a lot of respect for each other. Uh, when World War Two came around, you know that that relationship was was tested uh, on a number of levels, uh, many many times. And Eisenhower had to have more than one very frank conversation with with George Patton, mm-hmm. uh, acknowledging Patton's undeniable gifts as a military leader, right? But also telling him, George, Georgie, you call him Georgie. Yeah, you got to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, and and this is the last time I'm going to tell you to yeah. keep your mouth shut. Yeah, <laughs> you know that that's uh, so you know yeah yeah and, and again this is probably the poker part. Who who knows if if Eisenhower right. would follow through on the threat? Right, it doesn't matter. It only matters that Patton thought that Eisenhower would follow through <laughs> on that threat. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you have to say what you mean and mean it, and then be willing to to follow through. Uh, third, you know, pick good people that you can trust, mm-hmm. and, and, and then trust them. 
Mm-hmm. Right. More more than one president, I think, has has kind of run afoul of this of this yeah. uh, principle. Uh, picking people that you know are not necessarily trustworthy, but it's your brother-in-law or it's your cousin or, or whatever right. you know, whatever right. reasons you might have for picking them, uh, they're not usually you know good reasons. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant, you know the the other president that West Point gets gets to claim, yep. phenomenal general. His presidency was was a disaster in many respects because he he just could not. He was a terrible poker player, and he just <laughs> he, yeah, yeah. He, he just could not pick good people, and he was easily bluffed, you know, by people you know who would mm-hmm. say that oh you can trust me, and no, they were in it. They were in it for themselves. Yeah. So you, you have to be able to you got to be able to read people. Yeah. And uh, pick people you can trust, and then you got to trust them to actually to to do what you want them to do. You know, yeah. it, it doesn't do any good to have a lot of trust in somebody and never actually right in, invest trust in them to do something. Right, right. and then babysit them all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, the ability to delegate uh, was was really important, and uh, and he was really good at that, both um, as a military commander and and as president. Again, that's probably one of the, the the ways that you know this idea that he was not a hands-on kind of president you know comes about. That he does delegate a lot of stuff, and it's like I don't don't come talk to me until a you're done, or mm-hmm. b you've run into an insurmountable problem that you can't figure out mm-hmm. on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they would go and and they would do they would do what needed to be done. And then lastly, I think it's you know be be more than you appear. Uh, focus on deeds and not words. You know, I, like I said before, Eisenhower, under, an understated presence. It, it was real. It was easy to underestimate him until he went into action. And you know, he he didn't he didn't just talk. You know, try to talk his way out of out of problems. He comes under tremendous criticism in uh, the Mediterranean in 1943 and in Northwest uh, Europe in 1944. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't spend any time engaging in that criticism. It's, it's mm-hmm. more like, okay, watch. If, if, you're, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're so uh, wrapped around the axle by what you think I'm doing or not doing, watch for my results. So, you know, let, let's count them off. Operation Torch, the largest amphibious invasion uh, in history up to that time, a success. You know, the allies, the allies actually get on the continent. People are like, "Wow, that was amazing! Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe we actually did that!" Right? Yeah, that's in not fact, like crossing the Channel of France. That's a big, right, you know, around Spain right. and everything over there. Yeah, huge, huge coordination to. You know, ships are coming from South Carolina. They're coming right. from England. They're coming from all over the place to all land at the same spot at the same time, right? I, now, this kind of worked against them. There was so much relief that we actually did it that they kind of <laughs> forgot. They forgot to fight the Germans, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, right. So, it, it, so the, the campaign to capture Tunisia take, takes a while. But yeah. it's it's a success, right? Yeah. So when everyone's thinking, "Oh man, I don't think Eisenhower can pull it off," he he does, he wins, and then you go to Sicily, mm-hmm. an even larger amphibious uh, attack in, in the number of troops that are involved on mm-hmm. on the first day. Right? Mm-hmm. In thirty nine days, the island is conquered, mm-hmm. and and you know there's there's some criticism about well, you know, you should have had this person do this or whatever. But hey, right. Sicily Sicily's taken out, right? The Italians surrender. To Eisenhower. Yes. Yeah. Right. And then he sends he sends forces uh, in into Italy to make sure that the Italians stay surrendered, 
right? And, and we have a, a very long campaign in Italy, but he, he knocks the out. Come in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But he knocks out the Italians. Right. Uh, so you know he he's operating at a, he's operating at a diplomatic level he's operating at a military level he's operating at a at a leadership level and then you go to northwest europe obviously you know operation overlord the normandy uh, mm-hmm. landings um the day before when when you know there's a famous incident about the weather right. it's it's not it's, it's not looking good they've already postponed the invasion you know once mm-hmm. And uh, the weather, the, the weather guy says, "Okay, sir, I, I think we're going to have about you know twelve to eighteen hours, but I think, right, <laughs> <You know>? right, <laughs> I can't, I can't give an assurance. I think." And Eisenhower kind of goes around the room and he starts asking, and people are like, you know, no, don't go, no, don't go, no, don't go. Montgomery says, "Yes, go." You know, some more no's. And then, and, but ultimately, it's Eisenhower's decision, and, and right. he decides that, that they're going to go. Yeah. Uh, right after that decision, he goes back to his office and uh, gets a piece of paper and a pencil, and he writes down a note that if the invasion fails, this is what his statement is going to be. Right. And, um, he, you know, he, he basically says that the, the soldiers, sailors, and airmen did all that was asked of them. Right. If if there's any blame, it's mine. Yeah. Which which I mean, that's incredible. I, I'm getting, I, emo- I I'm getting it, emotional yeah. talking about this because I can't imagine the weight that he must have felt knowing that I'm about to send two million Canadians, British, Americans, mm-hmm. you know, not to mention the the French that are going to be in the line of fire. Yeah, right. This this is the mighty endeavor, the Great Crusade. We've been working and, for this for two years, right? Or more, really, right, you know, or more, or more, yeah. And and because I said let's go, yeah, you know, th- th- this is really really incredible. So you know, it, it's deeds, it's it's not words. It, it's what it's what you actually do that that you should judge somebody and and not what they say. If you've enjoyed this interview with Brian and you want to hear more from him, he's got some books out there. His most recent is Korean Showdown, National Policy and Military Strategy in a Limited War, 1951 to 1952. That sounds really interesting. I'm very intrigued by that title. Good. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, Brian. You're welcome, Kenny. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Faith and Drum Corps. In our next episode, on November 20th, I will drop two episodes of Abridged Presidential Histories. The first is a special Friendsgiving History Podcasting Spectacular, featuring a Presidential History Roundtable with our friends Jerry Landry of Presidencies of the United States, Howard Dory of Plotting Through the Presidents, and Alicia of Civics and Coffee. It's a really fun conversation. You will enjoy it. And I will also drop my narrative episode on John F. Kennedy and explore what is real and what is hidden by the myth of Camelot. That's coming up next on Abridged Presidential Histories.